0: Every week we grab our notebook and we start by looking at the back of the notebook again to remind ourselves, and and there you see at the top of your notebook that the purpose of Wellspring is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live out the gospel, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And I want to encourage you to use that as as a way that you can pray for this ministry. And pray for the other ladies in your discussion group. Pray for your buddy. um, That God would be pleased to work through this ministry to help each of us grow in this way. But our tools for pursuing that purpose are um, the disciplines. And the first discipline is the heart. She prayerfully shepherds your heart toward God through the word of God. And in particular, the gospel. Now, in our homework this week, we looked at some verses from Psalm 119. And in those verses, we hear the heart of a man who loves God and who loves his word and who is earnest to obey what he sees in that word. Psalm 119.10, we saw that it says, With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Now, there are a lot of synonyms for God's word in Psalm 119, and commandment is one of them. And so what the psalmist is saying, God, I have sought you. I've sought you with all of my heart, in my innermost being, with all that I am. I've sought you. I've pursued you. I've searched for you. And that pursuit Produces this cry where he says, Don't let me wander from your commandments. He says, Don't let me forget them. Don't let me just stroll away from them into a life of disregarding them and disobeying them. See, in seeking God wholeheartedly, he sees the danger of wandering from God's word. And you know, when I first was trying to think of synonyms for wander, the first thing that came to my mind was, oh, I'm going to stumble away. And then I looked it up and realized, you know, wander is a lot more passive than that. You know, when when do we wander? Maybe when we don't really know where we're going or we don't really have uh, a clear destination. So wander around the neighborhood. Or you're with a child. And their eyes just lead them and they're in an airport or they're in a mall and if you don't have a hold of that hand or strapped in the stroller, they're just going to wander away. And so we, as those who've been born again, who are new creations in a mixed condition, we talked about that last time, we can now be women who seek God with all of our hearts. And as we pursue that, as we pursue the life of being a wholehearted God seeker, We, too, must guard our hearts from wandering from the word and plead with God to guard us from wandering. And we do that by cultivating this daily discipline of meeting with God in his word, of seeking him in his word, to know him and to worship him and to humble ourselves before him, to be laid bare, ready to be exposed by the word, ready to respond with confession, repentance, Obedience, thankfulness, worship, ready to be transformed and renewed. That is what God's grace in the Gospels made available to us. We're no longer slaves to aimless wandering that will never bring us near to God in his word. We have God's Holy Spirit to strengthen us for the fight, the fight against wandering from his word and not seeking him. And that kind of pursuit of God in his word is what makes discipline two possible. So Discipline 2 says uh, the home. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. And a lot of times we say that Discipline 2 is an overflow of Discipline 1. And that's true in the sense that Discipline 2 is really not going to happen if Discipline 1 is not happening. And yet overflow has this idea of abundance. You know, water is just, if you're holding a a glass under the faucet, it overflows, the water is just pouring out because... There's more water than the glass can hold, right? And I want that to be what discipline two looks like in my life. Maybe that's what it looks in, like in your life. I, you know, I hope so. I hope at times that's what it is. And yet, a lot of times, the reality for me is that it's not necessarily automatic. That just that it overflows if I'm not intentional about ministering to my heart in this way, with my heart for God and the gospel. That Then where I can easily wander is to ministering, perhaps, out of a heart of obligation, or to please man, or because I want to be appreciated or noticed. I can easily slide down a slippery slope of ministering with resentment or self-righteousness. Proverbs 14.1 says, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. And building doesn't happen by accident. But when we shepherd our hearts with the gospel, when we meet with God in His Word, what that does is it strengthens us and prepares us to battle against that kind of wandering and to be builders in our households and with our families. To be thoughtful and prayerful about how we live life in our homes, in our closest relationships, where our lives are up against one another, where there are often many needs, there are often many opportunities to die to ourselves and to extend grace, and to serve. We can be encouraged by remembering that Jesus was no stranger to difficult home and family relationships. And yet he always pleased his Heavenly Father. Jesus has already given us everything we need for life and godliness, through our knowledge of God, for our ministry in our home. And so, ministry and service, particularly in our homes, done with a heart for God and the gospel, are opportunities to display what the gospel has done in us. Last time we looked at 2 Corinthians 4 7, and we saw that we have have treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of God's power will be seen. And discipline 2 is here to remind us that the first place that that power needs to be displayed. Is in our closest household and family relationships. And then that brings us to discipline three. Discipline three is ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. And this is so important. We've said it before, but these disciplines are not sequential. We don't just finish the first one and then start on discipline two, and when we're done with that and have it all figured out, then we start working on discipline three. That's not what we're talking about here at all. That's not what we're aiming for. But these disciplines help us understand our priorities. We want to have integrity in everything that we're doing in life, and that only happens when we diligently prepare ourselves for the role that God has given us in one another's lives by cultivating discipline one and Discipline 2, and continuing to grow and to be faithful in those disciplines as we step into one another's lives. Discipline 3 is not graduate work. It's not what you get to after you've been a believer a long time or when you are an older woman. Um, The New Testament is full of one another's. We're told to love one another and to serve one another and pray for one another and encourage one another and bear one another's burdens and on and on and on. These are all ways that we have opportunities to live out Discipline 3 with each other. Last time we talked about the mixed condition we're in. And, this, and because of this condition, this is what we need. We need to be living out these one another's with each other and caring for one another in this way. We have that opportunity especially in our discussion groups, with our buddies, in your small groups, um, with others in the church. Um, and we can encourage one another to guard our hearts and to seek God in his word, to live that out in our households and our families, so that we will be ready to be fruitful with the gospel wherever God puts us. School, at work, in your home, in, your, um, in the park with your kids, in your small group, wherever you have the opportunity to engage with people. And as we do that the whole church is strengthened, and that means that we together better display the fullness of Christ. So those are the disciplines, and we're going to keep those in front of us every week, because that's really um, what the purpose of Wellspring is, what we're aiming for. Okay. Last week, we looked at what the gospel does for our hearts, for our inner man, and we saw that the gospel Um, makes us into a new creation. And we talk about the fact that the new creation is not new in the sense that it's spotless and perfectly clean like that brand new pair of shoes that feels so good, but we're new in the sense that we're not what we used to be. The old is dead and gone and we cannot go back to that. And there is great hope in that. But God in his wisdom and his goodness and his sovereignty has caused us to be born again into new creations that are in a mixed condition. And we talked about the hope that we have because of all those conversion events, those gospel realities. And we talked about ongoing weaknesses of the new creation. We talked about new abilities that we have and new desires that we have. That although the old is um, gone, um, we still carry some residue from that along with those new desires. And so we have a great hope. Um, Because now we can fight against that sin that used to master us. See, a slave doesn't battle its master. A slave serves its master. And so the fact that as new creations we can now participate in this process of sanctification and that we are growing in our desire and our ability to battle sin by God's grace is all evidence that we have a new master. We have a good master. God is our master. And so today now we move into a biblical survey of the heart. And we're going to do that because God's word says a lot about the heart. Um, we you saw a lot about the word in your homework this these last couple of weeks. Um, it makes wise. It gives joy. Um, it gives growth in our salvation. It's useful for everything that we need. And so, by understanding God's concern for our heart, we position ourselves to benefit from God's word as He designed. So as we take a look at the heart today, we're going to look at what the heart is, what its qualities and condition is, what it understands, its call, its need, and we're going to look at all of that so that we're spurred on to embrace and pursue and rely upon that which God has provided for our heart. Now when we begin teaching on the discipline of the heart, and again when we do this, when we get to the discipline of the home, we like to do a biblical survey. Um, You have have your outline. If you don't have that, go ahead and pull it out. Um, And you can see that there are bold categories. Like number two says, what does scripture say about the human heart? And within each category, we start in the Old Testament and then we just work our way through and end up looking at verses in the New Testament. And the reason is that God... That's the way that he unfolded his revelation to us. God revealed to Moses exactly what he wanted his people Israel to have. What they needed to have a saving relationship with him. But as we know, he built on that. And he continued to reveal himself through time. And so we want to walk through these subjects in the way that God has given them to us in his word. So today we're looking for a very broad brush picture of what God says about the heart. And we're going to look at a lot of verses... And it's, not every lesson will be like last week's and this week's. But again, let this lesson serve you. If, it, if you want to flip it to every reference, that's a really good thing. It's helpful to see it in your own Bible, and you can make a little mark. And, and you learn your way around the Bible when you're flipping to 25 verses in, in an hour. And, and so that's, that is always a good thing to do. But if that becomes distracting for you, if it becomes overwhelming and you're having trouble keeping up, listen, because I will read the verses. Um, and uh, So just don't let that part of it become overwhelming for you. Um, we're going to do our, our best to let the verses speak for themselves um, and just to feel the weight of verse after verse about what God says about the heart, because God has told us a lot. Um, okay. Let's dive into question one then question one is what is the heart? When we talk about the heart, what do we mean? Now we've already addressed this um, somewhat our first couple weeks but we'll talk about it a little bit more today. but the heart is the inner man. it's the inner person. it is you. it sums up who you are inwardly speaking. We have the outer man that's our physical body, the physical part of us and then we have the inner man and that's the heart. the heart is the place where God reveals himself to us first and foremost. Um, The heart is the part of us that's addressed by God. It's where God evaluates us. The heart is the seed of doubt and hardness, as well as faith and obedience. The heart is the center of our emotions, our thoughts, and our will. It is the center of who we are. So every word and thought and desire and will, and emotion, and word, and deed. It all comes out of the heart. Now, biblically, there's a lot of overlap between the heart and the mind. For example, in the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. Jesus is not dividing us into four boxes, four compartments, and saying, okay, you need to love God with each piece of you. Rather, there's an overlap, and they're all describing who we are from the inside out. He uses heart, soul, strength, and mind to underscore that we are to love him completely, and we are to love him all out with the very essence of who we are, and that that overflows into everything that comes out of us. So if the heart has been enslaved by sin, the whole man is in bondage. And because corruption stems from the heart, it's there that God begins his work of renewal. God goes to work first on the inner man, and then that affects the whole man. And so when we say heart, we're talking about you, talking about me. Not just a part of us, but who we are at the very core, who we are in totality. So therefore, the heart is the focal point of God's evaluation of us. When we stand before God, he will not neglect our heart. All right. Question two. Then, what does Scripture say about the human heart? Now, at this point, we are speaking generally of the condition of the heart apart from new life in Christ, and that is that is the the focus um, all the way up until we get to question six, part two. But you're going to, but you're going to see that, especially um, in some of the verses where we move into the New Testament. That in this mixed condition, we still have some residue of what of what the old old man was like, and so although the the overall thrust here is to show us why we need Christ and how badly we need the gospel, the fact that we still retain many of those um, many aspects of what we see the heart is like apart from Christ should only spur us on in our ongoing need for the gospel and God's word. Okay, so go ahead and turn over to Genesis 6-5. The Word gives us this description of the human heart by way of explanation for what comes next, where God gives us the account of Noah's ark and God's plan to destroy the earth with a flood. And Genesis 6-5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So do you see just how wicked the heart of man is here? God is saying that every intent of the heart, of the thoughts of his heart, any intention, any planned purpose of his heart, there's nothing that doesn't have wickedness and evil just oozing from it. It's just saturated with wickedness. In the same sentence, he uses the word every, only, Continually, See, there's just this emphasis that there's no part of the heart that's outside of this. Man's great wickedness is primarily a heart problem. And so the flood comes in chapter 6 and 7. Maybe as you've gotten started on a reading program, you might have read that in the last few weeks. Um, and then in chapter 8, the flood subsides, and everybody comes out of the ark, and all the animals come off. And in chapter 8, verse 20, we read that Noah built an altar to the Lord. He was worshiping God. And that's a really good idea after you get off being on an ark with a whole bunch of animals for over a year. And God saved him and his family. And he took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And again, maybe you read this recently in your reading plan. When I was a little kid, I didn't understand how he could do that without making the animals go extinct. But it's because God told him to take extra of the clean animals so he still had some left (laughs) over. All right, you guys probably read more carefully than I do. Alright, verse 21, The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. So here we are, this moment of worship. And God says, again, what is still true of the human race. It's a repeat of what he said back in chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. There are only eight people on the face of the earth. And he says, as you worship me, as you come off this boat, there's still a problem. Man's heart is still evil. So the point is that the judgment of the flood did not fix man's heart problem." Now turn over to Proverbs 20, verse 9. Proverbs is smack dab in the middle of your Bible. If you open in the middle and you see Psalms, it's the next book to the right. And chapter uh, Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, Who can say, I've cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? Now that is a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. The answer is nobody. Right? The stain of man's heart is so great, we don't possess what it takes to cleanse it. Or to purify it. So, the answer to the question, who can cleanse their heart, is no one, according to God. And so, we've seen that the heart is evil and that it's beyond our ability to cleanse it. Now, we're going to go to Matthew 15. We're not going to read all of these verses, but I want to just summarize it for you. We've already touched on part of this passage in weeks past. But in verse 2, the Pharisees and scribes are very concerned about washing their hands. That's an outer man concern, isn't it? And in verses 7 and 8, Jesus responds and says, Here's a problem. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. See, they're not concerned with their heart. And so in Matthew 15, 15, Peter said to him, Explain this to us. And so verse 16, Jesus says, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand? That everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man. For out of the heart, out of the heart, come... Jesus didn't have any trouble coming up with a big long list of all the things come out of the heart. Evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness and slanders. These are the things which defile a man But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Jesus is telling us that there is a source of defilement and corruption inside us. The heart is the source that defiles us, that makes us impure. Now we're going to look at Romans 1, 20 and 21. Again, we're moving through the Bible from left to right, looking at what God has said about the condition of the human heart. And verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So from the beginning, God's made it clear that he is there. Verse 21, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So what is the proof of man's foolishness? It's this. Even though men knew something of God, they had no intent to honor him as God at the heart level. And that is foolish. And this foolish heart plunges a person into spiritual darkness. So we've seen so far in just five passages that man's heart is evil, that the heart is beyond our ability to cleanse, that is, it is the source of defilement within a person, And that the foolish heart invites even greater spiritual darkness. That is what God says about the heart. And that is a huge problem. And so question three then, is the heart alert to this devastating condition? And we're going to see that the answer is no, because it's deceived. Deuteronomy 11 is where we're going to go next. Now, if you are new to the idea of reading a lot of scripture each day, if you've been one who's really enjoyed parking in just a verse or two, um, there certainly is value in that. You get a lot out of the word by doing that. But probably you don't spend a lot of time in a book like Deuteronomy, if that's how you spend. And you know Deuteronomy talks about the heart 45 times and so, if we don't get ourselves in all of God's word, we're going to miss a lot of what God tells us about the heart. So, I hope that's just an encouragement. If you're, you know, getting on top of that reading plan is is a bit of a challenge, look for what God says about His heart. Every book you come to could just be a whole new perspective on on why there's such value in that. But verse 13 says, "It shall come about if you listen obediently to My commandments, which I'm commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all of your." Heart and all your soul that he will give the rain for your land in its season the early and late rain that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil and he will give grass in your fields uh, for your cattle and you will eat and be satisfied so this is the Mosaic Covenant and under the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant there were blessings for honoring the Lord from the heart from the inner man there was a relationship between obedience and physical blessings and provision from God But listen to what comes next in verse 16. Beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you don't turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Now why would Moses say beware after talking about abundance and blessings? He would only say that if there was something wrong inwardly with the inner self, with the inner man. And there is. The heart is easily deceived when it's surrounded by by blessings. And that's why we too need to be cautious. In our mixed condition we can still be easily deceived. See, I need to be cautious of me inwardly speaking when everything is the way I like it. Because my heart is easily deceived even when it when it is at its best following God and obeying him. Now we're going to look at Jeremiah 17:9. This is a familiar verse probably. Um, And we're going to see what Jeremiah has to tell us about the heart. And he uses some pretty strong language. He says, the heart is more deceitful than all else. He doesn't just say that it's deceitful, but that it's more deceitful than all else. And it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? So Jeremiah is encouraging us to make a list of whatever we can find that's deceitful in the world. And you could probably come up with a big, long list. We live in a very deceitful world, don't we? But no matter what you can find to put on that list, there is nothing that's going to beat the heart out of the number one spot. It is that sick. It is so sick, it's beyond our grasp. We can't even understand its condition. It is worse than we think. And we saw in Deuteronomy that it's easily deceived, even when it's at its best. And so now we see in Jeremiah that the heart itself is the most exceptional deceiver. Now our next passage is Romans 16. We're moving into the New Testament here to answer this question, is the heart alert to its devastating condition? Now we're talking about that condition we saw back in question one, that it's evil and it's beyond my ability to cleanse. It's the source of defilement, it's foolish and it invites more darkness. So here in Romans 16, Paul is finishing out his instruction in his letter to the Romans by saying, "Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turned away from them and turn away from them. Now why do they need to do that? Because such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. If we are unsuspecting people in the church, and there are troubles make, troublemakers in the church that we are naive to, our hearts can easily be deceived by them. And remember, that's when I'm at my best. Verse 19, Paul is rejoicing over the obedience of these believers. So we can be deceived by troublemakers in the church. Now turn over to James 1.26 to finish out this section. We've seen a lot about deception and the heart, but there's one more aspect of it in James that I want you to see. James writes, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. See, if I think I'm religious, but I don't have control over what comes out of my mouth, It is evidence that I have deceived my own heart. I'm self-deceived. So is the heart alert to its devastating condition? And the answer is no. Certainly not apart from Jesus Christ. How can it be alert to its own devastation when it is surrounded by, and vulnerable to, and filled with deception? And we've seen the warnings here to believers as well. There's an ongoing residue of deceivability even in this new creation. Okay, so in question two, we saw that the heart is evil. It's beyond our own cleansing. It's the source of defilement. It's foolish. It invites greater spiritual darkness. And then we saw in question three... That the heart is easily deceived, when it's at its, even when it's at its best. It's the most exceptional deceiver. The heart can be deceived by others. And as we just read in James 1, we can deceive our own hearts through our worthless religion. And that is a problem. So that brings us to question 4, where we're going to look at Matthew 22. And this is a New Testament repeat of what's in Deuteronomy 6. Jesus takes that summary command of what the law was all about and he repeats it for his disciples. So verse 36, he's asked the question, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? What is the highest thing that a good Jew like me should be all about? And Jesus answers, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. That is the highest call of the human heart to love God so let's just make sure we understand this correctly the heart that is evil and beyond our cleansing and the source of defilement that foolishly invites spiritual darkness that's easily deceived even when it's at its best and it also is an excellent deceiver that can be deceived by others as well as me and that is the most central part of me before God the place that God examines is supposed to love God that heart is supposed to love God and not just with a part of ourselves right but completely now if you didn't know Christ wouldn't you be thinking are you kidding me God do you know what you're asking my heart is filthy and you've called me to something so high and so that leads us to question five does God see this predicament We're going to skip those first few references and and turn to 1 Kings 8. Solomon has finished building the temple. um, And this these verses are part of his prayer of dedication. He's praying for the people of Israel, appealing to God to hear their prayers. And in verse 39 he says, Forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. See, God definitely sees the heart. He sees every heart. He's the only one who knows each heart. And so, yes, God definitely sees this predicament, this discrepancy between the heart's condition and his command for us to love him with all of our hearts. Uh, Let's see, we're going to skip a couple of these other references I encourage you to take time to go back and look up some of those on your own but we're going to look now at Jeremiah 17.10 we looked at uh, verse 9 just a minute ago but verse 10 says I the Lord search the heart I test the mind even to give to each man according to his ways according to the results of his deeds the Lord searches the heart for the purpose of personal repayment He comes to each one, and he evaluates, and he weighs, and he repays. And then he moves on to the next one. And when God says, I search the heart, I test the mind, he's not saying two different things there. He's saying the same thing in two different ways. He's saying there's nothing that I'm missing when I do this. See, God not only knows the heart, and he knows mankind's predicament, but he searches each heart for the purpose of repayment. Now let's go and see this in the New Testament. We're going to look at Mark 2. And I want to show you how Jesus displayed his deity with the same kind of knowledge of the heart. Mark 2 verse 6 says "But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Now they're not saying anything out loud. And what they're reasoning is, why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive God? sins, but God alone. And immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? See, The scribes were just thinking these words, and yet Jesus knows their hearts, and he knows their thoughts, and he responded to them as if they'd spoken their thoughts out loud. Jesus knows The heart, And he responds to them on the basis of what was in their heart. And so does God see this predicament? The answer is yes. In fact, he's the only one who sees it as it truly is. And he searches the heart for the purpose of repayment. And for the one who does not know Jesus, that is a frightening proposition. Let's go ahead and take a short break and we'll come back to question six. And we're going to get to the good news really soon. So we'll try to get started in five minutes. All right, we're going to pick up with question six on the outline, and we're going to turn to Deuteronomy 10 first, and we're going to get started. Alright, so we're going to start with Deuteronomy 10. And for this question, we're going to approach it from two different perspectives. The first is we're going to ask, what is the need? And who is responsible for meeting this greatest need of the human heart? And so we're going to go back and start at the front of our Bible again, back to Deuteronomy 10. I told you it has a lot to say about the heart. So we're going to see some more. Moses is talking to Israel. And in verse 12 he says, Now Israel... What does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today, for your good? Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. And yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is this day. Moses is reminding the people of this beautiful relationship that the creator God of the universe has given them with himself. He has set his affections on them, and he requires them to love him, to walk with him and serve him with all of their heart. And in verse 16, he drops a bombshell and he says, so, circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. See, their hearts need circumcision and they're commanded to do it for themselves. It is their responsibility to cut away all of this evil that's keeping them from loving God. Now go to Jeremiah 4. We're going to look at verses 4 and 14. This is nearly a thousand years later in the history of Israel. And God is still saying the same thing. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. See, it's a command. Again, he's telling them, you do this, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. God is concerned about the evil of their deeds. And where is he saying that that needs to be fixed? At the level of their heart. He's saying to Israel, there needs to be a radical removal, like circumcision of all that's wrong with your heart. Or there will be judgment. This is a serious need. Verse 14, he says, Wash your heart of evil, O Jerusalem, that you may be saved. How long? will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? How long will you keep being this way? It's already been over a thousand years. Here he's commanding the very thing that we saw in Proverbs 20, verse 9, that we can't do. Wash your hearts. That was back in question two. And yet he's saying, you do something about your heart. You wash it. God has identified the heart's greatest need That it needs a radical removal of all that's wrong. It needs to be cleansed. But he's placing this responsibility squarely on the shoulders of his people. Go ahead and turn to Ezekiel 18. If you're in Jeremiah, it's just two books to the right. And verse 30 says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Here it is again. Make yourselves a new heart. See, if you're a Jew and you're hearing this, you're thinking, God, you want me to make the most important part of me before you, the most important part of who I am before you, who I am at the very part at the very core, the part of me that births every thought and nourishes and matures and launches all of my emotions and my desires and my words, that part of me that you never overlook. You want me to do this? See, a Jew hearing this would have to ask that question. And the answer is, yes. The command is, do this. That would be very uncomfortable to hear. And that was intentional. They needed to be uncomfortable with this command. The next passage we're going to look at is Joel 2. Scott Maxwell always says, those are the crispy white pages in your Bible before you get to the New Testament. Over and over again, God makes it clear that he holds his people responsible to do something about the need of their heart. Verse 12 says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, and with fasting, and weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart, not your garments. See, that was the custom when something awful happened. Tear your clothes. It was a sign of deep sadness and grief. And God is saying, you need to do that to your heart. He's saying, return to me with this deep sadness for what you've made of yourself. Tear your heart at the heart level of who you are. Show deep grief and sadness and brokenness. As we move into the New Testament, we're going to turn to James 4.8. And we see this same idea in the New Testament, where James says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts you double-minded. So we've seen that the greatest need of the heart is to be cleansed and purified and have all that is wrong within cut away, like in circumcision, to be torn in grief and to be made new. And man is commanded to do it. It's our responsibility. You can go ahead and turn back to Deuteronomy 30 if you want, because now that we've seen that this great need of the heart is to be cleansed and that man is responsible for that now we get to look at question 6 from another perspective part 2 is what what God promises to do for man that man cannot do for his own heart and so here is where we find the gospel of grace running through all the scripture this is what we've been waiting for here is our hope So, Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, so it shall be, when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you. And he continues down and he gives many, many wonderful promises of restoration. And then down in verse 6, he says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. See, the old covenant anticipated that a new heart was desperately needed and that God would provide it. From its earliest days, the Old Covenant made Israel long for the day when God would do something with their hearts. From the giving of the law, when God was setting up the covenant through Moses, they were to long for a heart that was able to do everything God said. The Old Covenant actually highlighted the need for a new heart, though, without doing anything to provide it. Uh, we're going to skip Psalm 51 and go ahead and turn to Jeremiah 31. We're backtracking through a lot of the same books that we've already looked at as we're trying to get this cover-to-cover picture of what God says about our heart. And I hope you see how gracious God is, that in these very places, where, places in Scripture where he's making known the need of the heart, um, and he's laying this responsibility to meet that need squarely on the shoulders of the people, he is right there and he's giving them hope and he's promising that he will provide for this most desperate heart need. So this, this passage promises a new covenant. Jeremiah 31:31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt my covenant which they broke although I was a husband to them declares the Lord but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people They will not teach again, each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of these to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no longer. This is the promise of the new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, which they haven't experienced yet as a nation, even today. But there is something of an inauguration with the church, um, but not with the house of Israel as a nation yet. Um, The house of Israel and the house of Judah have a glorious day ahead of them when God fulfills this promise of the new covenant completely with them. But it is a covenant in which the focus will be at a heart level to do with the heart what the old covenant couldn't do. Now we're going to skip Ezekiel 11 and turn to Ezekiel 36. I really hope that you're encouraged to see how rich the Old Testament is in its teaching about the heart. Um, now all three of these references, the Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 11 that we skipped, and now Ezekiel 36, are all looking forward to this new covenant. And again, we're just seeing that God is kind and He is gracious. See, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, were both written at a time when God was judging his people, and he was sending them into exile. And yet over and over again he speaks these words of hope to them and reminds them of his promises. So in verse 26, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now a heart of flesh here means a soft heart. And it's contrasted with a heart of stone that is fleshly and stubborn and sinful and unteachable. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Don't you love that? When God gives his people a new heart, his spirit within them will cause them to walk in his statutes. That is God's promise to Israel, a new heart. Now turn over to Luke 22, and let's go see the beginning of that promise being fulfilled. Here we find Jesus. It's the night before his crucifixion, and he's eating the Passover with his disciples. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And you can see here that he's got the cross on his mind. He's looking forward to what's going to happen the next day. That's where Jesus is focused. And he says in verse 16, I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he'd taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. So he's making it clear that his death is imminent. But verse 19, when he'd taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup after they'd eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is taking the Passover supper, and he's transforming it into what has become for us a remembrance of his death in our place. He was inaugurating the new covenant that he would die to bring about. So now we're going to look at Acts 2. This is after Christ's death and after his resurrection and his ascension. The blood of the new covenant has been shed. The Holy Spirit has come on the disciples. They're speaking in tongues. They're proclaiming great things about God. And there are people of many languages from all over the earth who were gathered in Jerusalem for the Pentecost feast. And they could hear these disciples all speaking these great things about God in their own language. And they want an explanation. So Peter gets up and gives his first sermon. And to conclude his sermon in verse 36, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. See, God thought this about Jesus. He's Lord. He's Messiah. And those listening to Peter were the ones who crucified him. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. See, Peter says, Repent and be baptized. The promise is for you and your children and for all that God will call. See, the new covenant in Jesus' blood has been inaugurated. And the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all those who are present. And what happens at a heart level? And those who are listening to Peter, they're pierced. They experience conviction at the level of the inner man. See, the heart is worked on by the preaching of the gospel. The work that God promised is now starting. Now, if you want to flip over to Acts 15, uh, beginning in verse 6, we're at the Council of Jerusalem here. The Gentiles are believing, and this is a shock to the Jews, because what did the Jews think? That God was primarily working with Israel. It's what God said when he talked about the New Covenant, right? I'll make a new covenant with the house of Judah and with the house of Israel. But watch what happens in verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. God is allowing Gentiles now to participate in the promises of the new covenant as well as Jews. But nobody, Jew or Gentile, can get into the new covenant apart from faith and cleansing of the heart, of the inner self. Under the old covenant, they could come in as a Jew through circumcision and a commitment to the law, but it didn't mean their heart was changed. But you can't even get into the new covenant without a heart change. And so we saw... That the greatest need of the, heart, need of the heart is to be made new and to be cleansed. And that we are viewed by God as responsible. Now why does God command sinners to do something with their hearts that they can't do? It's because it puts the accent and the emphasis on our responsibility. That we are responsible for what we have become. And we are responsible to do something about it. Now that does not hinder God's process of doing for the sinner what only he can do for the sinner. Because understanding our responsibility makes the one that God is working in with his spirit say, I can't. Please, God, will you do it for me? It makes us cry out to God. It makes us look away from ourselves when we realize that our eyes have been opened by God to see how devastated our hearts are. And how deceived we are in the inner man. Now, when our eyes are open to see that and God says, you're accountable, we cry out, God, save me. I'm done with myself at that point. I'm done with playing at religion. I'm done with playing at church. I'm done with me. And we cry out for God's grace in the gospel to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Change me at a heart level. That's the gospel. That is why Jesus shed his blood. To pay for all that you are responsible for and I am responsible for that we don't want to pay for ourselves, but that many will spend an eternity in hell paying for. But Jesus suffered in our place so that we, by his grace, could be made new at the inner man level, at the heart level. And that is good news. We serve a very gracious God. In his word, he paints for us a very, very dark picture of who we were. And then, he brings the light. And we need to walk ourselves through this over and over. We need to take ourselves back on a journey and we need to remember where we were in our darkness and then we need to step into the light of the gospel and marvel again every day, all the time and and look at what God has done what, what he has done in us by the power of his gospel not because of ourselves but because of our great savior we can um, just rejoice in what he has done to transform us in the inner man well that brings us to question 7 um, and this is really what wellspring is all about this is what we want to get at so we're going to make one last pass through the bible and go back to Deuteronomy again So let's see what God says in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Number 7 is, what is God's provision for our hearts that need to change or have been changed? Verse 4 says, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So Israel would have been thrust up against this. How am I supposed to love God like this? Verse 6, he tells them, These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. See, this is God's provision for our heart that has been changed in the gospel. It's his word. That we would have his word just pushed up against our inner man. kneaded into it. Go ahead and uh, turn to Ezra 7. We're going to look at verse 10. Ezra understood this. He was a scribe long after Israel had been sent into captivity, and now God was letting them return to the land that he gave them. Ezra understood that the heart and God's word were to be in full contact, ongoing with each other. Verse ten it says Ezra had set his heart, set his heart to study the Lord, the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. So this is the Old Testament version. Of shepherding your heart. Ezra set his heart to study and to practice and to teach God's word. That's what we're talking about in Discipline 1. Ezra knew his heart needed to be in contact with God's word. And so we need to ask ourselves do we? Do we know that? Do we understand how badly our hearts need God's word? Uh, Next place we're going to look is Psalm 119, verse 11. You looked at Psalm 119 Um, this week. We're going to skip Psalm 19 for now. You look at that, your first week of of homework. But we're going to see uh, that the psalmist understood this relationship between the heart and God's word as well. Um, Verse 11 says, Your word I have treasured in my heart, at the heart level, at the innermost part of who I am. Why? That I might not sin against you. The psalmist understood that the only way not to sin against the Lord who loves him is to treasure God's word in his heart. He esteems the word. It's his treasure. It's what he values. And he treasures it in the innermost part of who he is. There is nothing more precious to him. Now, does that sound like something that he's going to engage with casually? Or... Occasionally, just like Ezra, the psalmist understood that he had a need for God's word on a heart level. And so you can see that you have some verses from Proverbs listed there too. We're not going to turn there. But these are the pleas of a father exhorting his children to bring his words into full contact with their hearts. It's not just our hearts that need to be fully engaged with God's word. It's what our children's hearts need. And it's the hearts of everyone we have the opportunity to come in contact with. This is the treasure. This is the treasure we give to one another for their heart. Well, back to Jeremiah. Another book that we might not think off the top of our head is rich in teaching about the heart. But in Jeremiah 31, 33, we're going to see what God said he would do under the new covenant. And we read it already. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. God says he will put his law where? It's on the heart. He's going to put his law on the heart. So God commands, get this word near your heart, and then he says he's the one who's going to do it. The new covenant brings the heart and God's word into a new relationship unlike anything before. And so let's go to the New Testament and we're going to look at Jesus. Luke 8, 11. Jesus tells this foundational parable about a farmer sowing seed on different soils. And then he gives the meaning of the parable in verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart. So they will not believe and be saved. See, the enemy knows what God's provision is for the inner man, and he doesn't want God's word coming near to a person's heart. Verse 13 Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm and these have no firm root, and they believe for a while, and in time of temptation they fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they're choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. See, in three of these soils, the word gets snatched away, or it sprouts and it dies, or it just gets choked out. But in verse 15, we see the only good soil. These are the ones who have heard the word of God with an honest and good heart. And now we've we've heard, how do we get that heart, right? And they hold it fast, and they bear fruit. See, Jesus' intent is that God's word needs to be in contact with our heart. In Luke 24, uh, this is after Jesus has been raised, and he's joined up with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. After the crucifixion, they're walking along the road and they are just discouraged. They're, um, let's see, I guess Jesus joins them and they explain to him what's been going on. And Jesus replies, Oh, foolish men, this is verse 25, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. They were foolish men and they were slow of heart. Their heart was too slow in its interaction with the word of God. So what does Jesus do but explain the word of God? And in particular, he explains his suffering. See, the answer for my heart is Jesus' suffering. It's Where do we see that? But in the gospel. Jesus is the one who takes away sin and makes us new in the inner man. So then going on down to verse 32, the disciples get to where they're going and Jesus eats with them and they still haven't recognized him until he breaks bread. And then verse 32, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? See, their hearts were on fire as he was teaching the word of God to them. Their hearts were burning because the gospel was being proclaimed to them by their Savior. We're going to turn to Hebrews 4 next. um, And we're going to see why. Why is God's word the provision that our hearts need? We're going to have a whole lesson on Hebrews uh, next week from Jamie next time, two weeks from now. But verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is God's design for his word with us, that it would come near to our hearts and that we would use it like a surgical tool and allow it to reveal the thoughts and the intentions and everything that's going on inside of us at a heart level. God's word is his provision for our hearts. So what does our inner man need more than anything, even in this new condition, even in this mixed condition as a new creation? Now, if you remember last time we had that diagram, the old man was only in one unmixed, deceived, devastated condition. And now in our mixed condition, we can still be deceived. But what is different is that in this new, with this new inner man that we have been given a capacity by God for God to know him and to love him and to pursue him and to obey him. But that means that we need to watch over our hearts. And we won't be done with that until we die or until Jesus returns. And we won't have to worry about it then because we'll be completely good from the inside out. But right now, what we need to do more than anything else for our inner man, for our heart, is we need to grab hold of this. This word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces. We need the word of God. So, what is the whole point? If we understand who we are in Jesus Christ, what he has made us into, if we understand the nature of of our inner man then we will recognize that we need the word of God and we need it more than anything else in this world we will treasure it we need to bring our inner man into full contact with the word of God all of the time and we need to do it prayerfully and worshipfully in a way that is dependent on him dependent on him to reveal himself to us through his word So we need to open up the word and we need to pray to God, God, please meet with me here. Reveal yourself to me. Show me who you are through these words. Feed my heart as your new creation. Give me eyes to see where the residue of the old man is still hanging around. And if we come to the word with that attitude, we will become so much more dependent on God himself as we read. Now, to conclude, we're going to take one last look at how important it is to be dependent. We're going to take a quick look at Peter. Now, before Jesus died, Peter was not shepherding his heart well. Okay, In fact, he was pretty confident the night before Jesus died. Uh, basically, he said, you know what, I've checked inside and I've got everything it takes to go the distance with you, Jesus. I'm going to go the full distance. Everybody else might desert you, but I'll even die with you. He thought his heart was okay. And Jesus said to him, Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter said, no, I'm not. (laughs) Not me. That is a man who was terribly unaware of his inward condition. And he was so distraught by what happened when he did deny Jesus That even after he had seen Jesus raised from the dead, he basically made the conclusion in John 21, I'm going to go fishing. Because I'm going to go back to what I did before Jesus called me. Because I'm pretty sure he's not going to use me now. So what does Jesus do with disciples like that? He comes. He finds them. He pulls Peter up on the beach. Now, is this what he said? He said, "Now, Peter, are you finally going to start getting in the word? When are you going to quit embarrassing me? That's not what Jesus said, is it? Now, Jesus cuts right to the very core. And he goes right to what he knew was underneath it all. And he said to Peter, do you love me? Because that is where Jesus wanted to come. And he wanted to protect And he wanted to nurture, and he wanted to fan that love that was in Peter's heart for Jesus, and he wanted to fan it into a blazing fire. That is our Savior. Now, if you find yourself in a place like Peter was, this is good news. We have got a Savior who loves to come after disciples like that, and he does. And he will renew our love for Him. And we participate in that renewal as we shepherd our hearts to come to the Word of God to meet with the God of the Word. All right, let's pray. Father, oh, I'm just so thankful for Your Word. And Lord, I I plead with You to grow in me, Lord, more, more reliance on your word, more dependence on your word, more obedience to your word, more love for your word. Oh, Lord, I want, I want to treasure your word as the place that I meet with you above all else. Oh, Lord, grow that in each of us. Oh, Father, how I pray for every, every heart here, Lord, that every heart would be encouraged and that your spirit would do a work to grow our devotion to you through meeting with you every day in your word. Oh, Lord, that you would let your word perform its perfect work in transforming us to be more like Christ. Father, as we now break off into our groups, I pray that you would um, just be with each group. Lord, just um, help each leader just have wisdom about where to start the discussion, Lord. Father, I pray that each woman would um, be able to participate and be encouraged and encourage others um, in a way that helps uh, solidify the things that she maybe heard today or that she saw in the homework, maybe that she saw in last week's lesson. I pray that you would help us to care well for one another. Your church would be strengthened through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, before we break up, um, just a, a couple of um, things. Re- just a reminder that um, you'll talk about your assignment together that you did this week, and then you'll hand it in to your leader when you're done, um, and she'll give you back what you turned into for last time. And if you lead a discussion group, if you would just put your assignment in the red folder back on the table after discussion time, that'll be great. Um, and this is a suggestion for you with the homework. I should have given you this suggestion last time. I, I will just tell you that, um, all right, this, I don't know. I'm going to say this. I don't want this to be a stumbling block for anybody. But the number on my clock said... This pretty small number when this was getting done, and it was today, okay? It was like three or four or something in the morning, because I didn't have it done, okay? So I understand not getting this done till the last minute. Probably none of you did it later than me. I'll just, you know, that's that was the reality of my life this week. Um, but it's also true that it's helpful to prepare for answering these if you have at least looked at the questions before three in the morning on Saturday, okay? Um, and so I want to encourage you maybe take it and take your outline and fold it in half and stick it with your reading plan so that tomorrow morning when you get up and you get ready to read you can at least read through the questions and you'll kind of have them to mull over and be thinking about and it's going to be right there so maybe next Saturday since you're not getting up and going to Wellspring you'll you know have a chance to go ahead and work on at least some of the questions ahead of time i'm going to try to do that next week i um so anyway that's just a suggestion for the homework that you might find helpful um i wrote in my notes to encourage you to do before friday night but now i'm encouraging you to do before saturday morning how about that